Chapter 8 of The First Men in the Moon by H.G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. Chapter 8 A Lunar Morning. The harsh emphasis, the pitiless black and white of scenery had altogether disappeared. The glare of the sun had taken upon itself a faint tinge of amber. The shadows upon the cliff of the crater wall were deeply purple. To the eastward a dark bank of fog still crouched and sheltered from the sunrise, but to the westward the sky was blue and clear. I began to realise the length of my insensibility. We were no longer in a void. An atmosphere had arisen about us. The outline of things had gained in character, had grown acute and varied, save for a shadowed space of white substance here and there, white substance that was no longer air but snow. The Arctic appearance had gone altogether. Everywhere broad, rusty brown spaces of bare and tumbled earth spread to the blaze of the sun. Here and there at the edge of the snowdrifts were transient little pools and eddies of water, the only thing stirring in that expanse of barrenness. The sunlight inundated the upper two blinds of our sphere and turned our climate to high summer, but our feet were still in shadow and the sphere was lying upon a drift of snow and scattered here and there upon the slope, and emphasised by little white threads of unthawed snow upon their shady sides, were shapes like sticks, dry, twisted sticks of the same rusty hue as the rock upon which they lay. That caught one's thoughts sharply. Sticks? On a lifeless world? Then, as my eye grew more accustomed to the texture of their substance, I perceived that almost all this surface had a fibrous texture, like the carpet of brown needles one finds beneath the shade of pine trees. Cavour, I said. Yes, it may be a dead world now, but once... Something arrested my attention. I had discovered among these needles a number of little round objects, and it seemed to me that one of these had moved. Cavour, I whispered. What? But I did not answer at once. I stared, incredulous. For an instant, I could not believe my eyes. I gave an inarticulate cry. I gripped his arm. I pointed. Look! I cried, finding my tongue. There! Yes, and there! His eyes followed my pointing finger. Eh? he said. How can I describe the thing I saw? It is so petty a thing to state, and yet it seems so wonderful, so pregnant with emotion. I have said that amidst a stick-like litter were these rounded bodies, these little oval bodies that might have passed as very small pebbles. And now first one, and then another, had stirred, had rolled over and cracked, and down the crack of each of them showed a minute line of yellowish-green, thrusting outward to meet the hot encouragement of the newly risen sun. For a moment that was all, and then there stirred, and burst a third. "'It is a seed,' said Cavour, and then I heard him whisper very softly, Life! Life! And immediately it poured upon us that our vast journey had not been made in vain, that we had come to no arid waste of minerals, but to a world that lived and moved. We watched intensely. I remember I kept rubbing the glass before me with my sleeve, jealous of the faintest suspicion of mist. The picture was clear and vivid only in the middle of the field. All about that centre the dead fibres and seeds were magnified and distorted by the curvature of the glass. 
but we could see enough. One after another, all down the sunlit slope, these miraculous little brown bodies burst and gaped apart, like seed pods, like the husks of fruits, opened eager mouths that drank in the heat and light, pouring in a cascade from the newly risen sun. Every moment, more of these seed coats ruptured, and even as they did so, the swelling pioneers overflowed their rent-distended seed cases and passed into the second stage of growth. With a steady assurance, a swift deliberation, these amazing seeds thrust a rootlet downward to the earth and a queer little bundle-like bud into the air. In a little while, the whole slope was dotted with minute plantlets standing at attention in the blaze of the sun. They did not stand for long. The bundle-like bud swelled and strained and opened with a jerk, thrusting out a coronet of little sharp tips spreading a whirl of tiny spiky brownish leaves that lengthened rapidly, lengthened visibly even as we watched. The movement was slower than any animal's, swifter than any plants I have ever seen before. How can I suggest it to you, the way that growth went on? The leaf tips grew so that they moved onward even while we looked at them. The brown seed case shriveled and was absorbed with an equal rapidity. Have you ever on a cold day taken a thermometer into your warm hand and watched the little thread of mercury creep up the tube? These moon plants grew like that. In a few minutes, as it seemed, the buds of the more forward of these plants had lengthened into a stem and were even putting forth a second whirl of leaves, and all the slope that had seemed so recently a lifeless stretch of litter was now dark with the stunted olive-green herbage of bristling spikes that swayed with the vigour of their growing. I turned about, and behold, along the upper edge of a rock to the east with a similar fringe in a scarcely less forward condition swayed and bent, dark against the blinding glare of the sun. And beyond this fringe was the silhouette of a plant mass, branching clumsily like a cactus, and swelling visibly, swelling like a bladder that fills with air. Then to the westward also I discovered that another such distended form was rising over the scrub. But here the light fell upon its sleek sides, and I could see that its colour was a vivid orange hue. It rose as one watched it. If one looked away from it for a minute and then back, its outline had changed. It thrust out blunt, congested branches until, in a little time, it rose a coralline shape of many feet in height. Compared with such a growth, the terrestrial puffball, which will sometimes swell a foot in diameter in a single night, would be a hopeless laggard. But then, the puffball grows against a gravitational pull six times that of the moon. Beyond, out of gullies and flats that had been hidden from us, but not from the quickening sun, over reefs and banks of shining rock, a bristling beard of spiky and fleshy vegetation was straining into view, hurrying tumultuously to take advantage of the brief day in which it must flower and fruit and seed again and die. It was like a miracle, that growth. So one must imagine the trees and plants arose at the creation and covered the desolation of the new-made earth. Imagine it. Imagine that dawn. The resurrection of the frozen air, the stirring and quickening of the soil, and then the silent uprising of vegetation, this unearthly ascent of fleshiness and spikes. Conceive it all lit by a blaze that would make the intensest sunlight of earth seem watery and weak. And still around the stirring jungle, 
wherever there was shadow, lingered banks of bluish snow. And to have the picture of our impression complete, you must bear in mind that we saw it all through a thick, bent glass, distorting it as things are distorted by a lens, acute only in the centre of the picture, and very bright there, and towards the edges magnified and unreal. End of chapter 8